There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello. This episode and a few more to come this season were made possible with the generous help of the British Podcast Awards Fund and the Wellcome Trust, who basically gave me money to tell knob jokes. Well, no. Actually, they've asked me to do some episodes based on HIV, because it's important, both historically and culturally, to know about this stuff. It's not taught in schools or anything like that, so instead of textbooks and teachers... You've got me. This first episode will give a bit of overall context and a potted history. Next week, I'll talk to someone who lived through it. And after that, I'll have a chat with a handsome doctor about what HIV is and isn't, how we deal with it, and some of the myths that surround it. Please stick with it if you can, because, like I say, it's important. You're listening to Probably True. Please be aware that this podcast may contain strong language and adult themes. It would be boring without them. Before we get started, guess what? Join me on a journey through queer history. I'm glad I kept that. It would be easy to think that as soon as the first gay pride march had happened, suddenly everything was great and now everyone was free and it gets better and love wins and blah blah blah. It would be easy to think that, but it would also be wrong. Because, as I've mentioned before, just saying love wins and it gets better doesn't change anything. Love doesn't win unless you get off your arse and do something. It doesn't get better unless people work long and hard to make it get better. Still, after the Stonewall Uprising in 1969, gay rights movements were really beginning to gather steam and increasing followers and slowly, very slowly, things started to... Well, no. No, actually, that's not even right, is it? What actually happened was things began to discuss the possibility that shifting might be possible in the future, perhaps one day, at some point, maybe. Slow progress. But still, hope, visibility and a general slow shift in the minds of the public was beginning to happen throughout the 70s. 
And then, in 1980 and 1981, there were groups of cases of pneumonia springing up in New York and San Francisco, linked to what they thought was a new form of cancer that seemed to attack the immune system, and it seemed to be centering on gay men. And cancer didn't work like that, as far as anyone knew, so this soon got the interest of the medical community. And because it seemed to be focusing on gays, it was actually even briefly called GRID, Gay-Related Immune Deficiency, until they realised that it wasn't actually gay-related as such, because that's not a thing when it comes to viruses. They don't care who they infect, they just want to infect people. Saying only gay people could get HIV would be like saying only left-handed people could get measles. But that didn't stop the disease from being referred to as punishment from God by religious nutjobs. It's amazing the amount of hatred those fuckheads can justify. A big part of the reason that this sort of fuckery was popular was because at the time no one knew what HIV was. We know now that it's a virus, but it's a certain kind of virus that hadn't been seen before, a retrovirus. In fact, we'd only really been studying viruses for about 40 years at this point, because you need an electron microscope to see them, because they're so fucking tiny. And so it was considered impossible for a virus to do the things that HIV was doing. No one knew what it was, and if you don't know what it is, you can't test for it, because you don't know what you're looking for. So for a good few years, as more and more people died, there was no idea what it was, if or how it got passed on, or anything like that. All that happened was the fear attached to it grew. All they knew was that it seemed to be attacking gay men. Lots of them. All of them. Now we know it's transmitted through blood and sex, so while it didn't actually target gay men, they have been known to love the D. And with cities like New York, San Francisco and London being places where lots of them happen to be, all running around naked and sticking bits themselves in each other, a lot of disease was being spread around with all the boning. When I say gay men, it all sounds a bit abstract, doesn't it? A bit vague. These were kids. The way that HIV works means there's no symptoms for a really long time, but you're still infectious. So without proper testing, which they didn't have... You can catch it, feel fine, and be having a ton of sex and not know that there's any kind of problem, or that you might have infected anyone else, for five to ten years. So you could be running around as a horny teenager, experimenting, exploring your body and other people's, banging anyone who'll let you, and then you turn 21 or 22 or whatever, and bam. Suddenly you're just wasting away and dying from something that no one knows or understands. And just when you need help and comfort and reassurance, no one dare touch you. The newspapers and the authorities are all shaming you and all your friends for that lifestyle. And there's people out there telling you it's punishment from God for daring to enjoy your own body. Imagine the pain of watching a loved one wither and die slowly over many months and not knowing if you were going to be next. Could you kiss him? Or hold him as he cried from the pain and the shame and the despair of knowing that he's about to die and there's nothing anyone can do about it? Imagine going to funeral after funeral after funeral and not knowing if you could hug any of your friends as you cried your heart out in case just by touching them you passed on this awful disease with no cure that seemed to be magically targeting you all. A lot of these kids had already left their homes, either for fear of their parents finding out they were gay, or they'd been kicked out because their parents had found out they were gay. And they'd come to the big cities to find a place where they could live and love openly and freely and without judgement. They'd built new, 
queer families who could love and support them. And then they had to watch as slowly and cruelly everyone they knew and loved died in front of them, knowing that it would only be a matter of time before they were next. As I was researching this, there were a lot of stories of people in their late teens or their twenties lying in hospital beds alone. There was either no one left to look after them or anyone who could was too afraid to. So many stories of parents who, finding out that their son was dying from HIV, would rather just ignore the whole thing, pretend they don't have a son, rather than face the shame of the fact that their son's dying from this awful disease. Even after cremation, they wouldn't come and pick up his ashes because of the shame. There was one group of people, though, who cared for those dying men, when the straight doctors and nurses would barely even enter the wards or stick their heads around the door for fear of catching something or because they brought it on themselves and they shouldn't live that kind of lifestyle if they don't want this kind of thing to happen. And those people were gay women. The lesbians, they were there looking after the menfolk. As usual, it would be easy and stupid to centre this whole thing around white cis men. But the truth is that people of colour and transgender communities were hit as hard, if not worse, than the cis white homos. And through all of this, as people of colour and transgender people and white cis gay men were all suffering and dying, the ones holding the hands and, and being shoulders to cry on and generally helping everyone live and die with dignity were the women in the LGBTQ community. Because, as often we need reminding, community isn't and should never be people who are just like me. It's all of us. So, by 1983... Scientists had worked out that it was a virus. So within two years of it becoming a thing, scientists had worked out that it was a virus that was spread through blood and sexual contact. By 1985, two years after that, there was a blood test to find it. So, you know, progress was being made. Finding out you had it at this point wasn't particularly great because there was no cure or even any way of managing it. All the positive test meant was that you knew you had it and that it would pretty much definitely kill you slowly and painfully in a few years' time. A lot of young men didn't bother waiting. There were quite a few who'd rather take their own lives or party themselves to death rather than wait for it to happen. Even though all this progress was being made, the difference between scientific knowledge and general ignorance is a big one. So despite it being common knowledge that it could only be passed on through sex and blood, there was still a huge amount of stigma to having HIV. The shame around it was big and heavy, and it's still around now to a degree, which is crazy. If you had friends dying of the disease, the best thing you could do was lie. In 1987, there was a, a guy who died of HIV. His best mate was a girl who told everyone in her office that he died in a car crash because she didn't want to have to deal with all the judgment and stuff that would come from being friends with someone with HIV. And the lie worked. Everyone was really sympathetic and caring and stuff until they found out that he'd actually died of HIV. Then, when she came into work the next week, they'd moved her desk to the other end of the office and people refused to talk to her or lend her staplers and things like that because they had kids and they had to think about them. There's even a story I found of a man who was having a heart attack stumbling into a fish and chip shop and asking to use their phone because this was before mobile phones, of course, so there's no other way. He was, he was going to die of a heart attack if he didn't call someone. The fish and chip shop called the ambulance. He sat there and waited and managed... I think he survived, actually. I can't remember. But they found out at some point that he had HIV... And then suddenly, customers stopped going to this fish and chip shop. It almost had to close down because no one wanted to eat there anymore because there'd been a HIV positive man in it. And you might be sitting there thinking, oh, well, how silly people were back in the olden days. We'd never do anything stupid like that nowadays. But 
all this coronavirus knocking around, you see people avoiding Asian people on the tube. That's just racist. That's just nasty. There's always that excuse, oh, well, you never know. Oh, we can't have fish and chips from there anymore. That HIV guy was in there, he was ill. And you never know, do you? Well, we do know, and you're an idiot. People are stupid and fearful and easily manipulated. This has not changed throughout history. Speaking of, the media had not just been homophobic, had been downright cruel to LGBTQ people, especially those with HIV. In fact, as far as they were concerned, there was no different. If you were gay, you either had it or you were going to. It was a whole thing. G-A-Y stands for Got AIDS Yet. The Sun, the shitty little tabloid that it is, not even absorbent enough to be toilet roll, but there we go, ran an article calling for the extermination of all gays to stop the spread of the disease. Not finding a cure or looking after them, or better sex education or anything like that. Just kill them all. Line them up and shoot them. It was proven that HIV couldn't be transmitted through touch or sneeze or sharing a toilet seat or whatever by about 1983. But that didn't stop people being stupid and afraid. It's 2020 and we've still got stupid people around. <sighs> Actually, in 1987, Princess Diana helped a bit with that. Bless her cotton socks. Well, I don't know if she wear cotton socks. She was posh. She probably wore silky ones. Bless her silky stockings. So yeah, all this stigma and shunning anyone with HIV, being terrified to touch them or take money from them if they were trying to buy something from you in the world before contactless credit cards. Princess Diana did a thing. She went on a tour of a new hospital and it had an AIDS wing and she shook hands with someone dying of AIDS. No gloves or anything like that. In front of all the cameras and the world's media, she treated him like a human being. And that caused shockwaves. Four years. Four years since doctors had said, no, don't worry, you can't catch it from touching someone. And the simple act of shaking his hand made the front page of pretty much every newspaper in the world. She knew what she was doing. She might have been a randy tart, getting it from anyone who'll give it to her, but, you know, nothing wrong with that. Bless her. We've all been there. Viruses we can isolate, we can deal with. And we have. But the shame and the stigma and the judgment that hangs off it, that's a lot harder to shake. And my heart goes out to him. It really does. Like, not only did all these innocent young men learn that they were likely to wither away and die and there was little or nothing that could be done, but they had to do it in the face of shame and disgust from a society that either didn't know any better or didn't care. You brought it on yourself is not something anyone in that situation needs to hear. And so the epidemic continued. It took until 1995 for drugs to be developed that could help people manage the condition so that it wouldn't actually kill them. 15 years from the first recorded outbreaks to a drug that could manage the disease seems like a long time. But I'm told by people who know this kind of thing that that is remarkably quick for anything like this, especially considering how little we knew about viruses and things like that. It's a good thing to know, you know, if you were diagnosed, it could be managed. You could live a normal life. You'd, there's still no cure even now, but people with HIV aren't suffering anymore. You can live with it. You can manage it. You can thrive despite it. In the past 37 years, more than 32 million people died from HIV and AIDS-related illnesses. And that's just the ones we know about. So let's, let's think of it another way. 32 million people. That's every single person living in London, New York, San Francisco, Berlin, 
Paris, Toronto, Melbourne, and Sydney. All of them together. Or another way, it's just over half of the UK population. All of it. It's like Thanos doing his magic snap and making half the UK die. Except it's not random, and it wasn't quick or painless. He didn't dissolve into dust. It was slow and excruciating. You watched your body shut down from the inside. It was messy and absolutely heartbreaking. And it would be everyone you know. Not just your boyfriend or your close friends or some gay people, but everyone. Like the barista who smiles at you, the guy you see on your way to work most mornings, the older guy from the office who always dresses nicely, people on the street that you don't know but you'd see every day, the bus driver, the lawyer, the chef, and everyone that they ever loved or cared about or just shagged because they were horny. Slowly rotting while they're still alive and you have to watch and there's nothing you can do. If I were to sit here and read out the names of everyone who died, or the ones we know anyway, just one after the other, without stopping, so like this. Scott Flashheart, Stephen Jones, Tits McGee, like that, just keep going. It would take me two and a half years. No stopping, no sleep, no rest, no eating, drinking, anything like that. Just one name after the other, like that. Take me 30 months. They all had dreams and plans and whole lives ahead of them. They were kids. They were a lot younger than me, most of them. And they'd move to the big cities to find more people like them, to build their families and their social groups who would love them and support them in ways that their own flesh and blood couldn't or didn't want to. Some of them would have been great artists or writers or politicians or inventors or anything like that. And, you know, yeah, some of them were complete dickheads because, of course, they were. Who isn't in their 20s? I don't want to romanticise or generalise or anything, because that's stupid. It's not that these kids were special or different or somehow more than everyone else. It's quite the opposite, actually. They were just like everyone else. They were everyone else. All of them had the potential to go on and do great things or to do nothing, sit at home and rot their brains with Love Island. They never got to find out. I'm not telling you all of this to bum you out or to make you miserable or sad. It's hard to hear, but it's important that we do. It's important that we know about it, and that's, you know, that's, that's my job. That's our job, really, is to acknowledge these things and to look all this quite brutal reality in the eye and be aware of our shared history. It hurts to look at it, to think about it, and to address it. It would be easier, certainly, to say that now HIV is under control. We no longer need to think about it because there's still so much fear and pain and suffering that this history brings up, especially in people that were there at the time. So much of it lingers in one form or another, and that's why it's our job now to learn from it. We build on their suffering and their sacrifice, and we create a better world for those who will come after us. That sounds a bit wanky, but never mind. Out of all this pain comes growth, is my point. The key is you have to find ways to process the trauma and turn it into something, something positive. And what I mean is it's important to see the good that came out of these awful situations, as well as the despair and the pain and the scars that last for generations. There is, in the midst of all this pain and suffering, some good stuff. A lot of people came together in the face of seemingly inevitable suffering and death. These people, just like you and me, found hope through each other and through their shared fight. And by Christ did they fight. 
because this was happening around the time that Pride was becoming a bigger and bigger thing, our community was learning to stand together and work together to beat stigma and prejudice and just be allowed the same rights and freedoms as everyone else. In the face of hatred from the media, the government, and seemingly the gods themselves, these people picked up signs and posters and they marched and they shouted and they threw things. Alongside Pride, organisations like Stonewall and Act Up and Outrage and Gay Men Fighting AIDS were formed and they did some amazing work. I haven't got time now, I'll talk about them some more in the future because they're truly inspiring. And that's really the thing to take away from all this. From so much pain and suffering and senseless waste, compounded with all the hateful campaigns from the religious right and the shame of those who are either malicious or ignorant, in the face of all of that, our community survived. It seemed unbearable at the time, and it's almost impossible to imagine now, but our brave siblings, together, came through it. No one managed it by themselves. It takes a village to raise a child, and it took a community, together, to survive a plague. Maybe that's the biggest lesson we can hold on to from all of this. That we are, and always have been, on the same team. I was trying to find the story, I was trying to find the hero, the one or two people behind it all that could help me tell this story properly, and the more I looked, the more I saw it wasn't any one or two people, it was everyone. There are so many stories, not just because so many people were affected by it, but because so many people did something. And that's pretty awesome. So whenever you see, now, someone trying to divide the community, over whether it's gay men but not women, or LGB but not the T, or anything like that, remember our community's at its best when we include everyone. Because that's what it's all about. People doing what people do best. They look out for one another. Not out of fear or pity or panic, but out of actual love and genuine human kindness and that urge when you see someone suffering to do something to help. We may be stupid and sometimes scared and easily manipulated, but underneath it all, we're also kind and caring and just a little bit wonderful. That was probably true. The multi-award-winning storytelling series written and produced by me, the multi-award-winning Scott Flashheart. It was designed to remind all of my queer siblings that we are none of us alone. You can find links, transcripts of every episode, and all that good stuff at probablytruepodcast.com. If you enjoyed or found value in anything you've heard today, you can support the show on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash probablytrue. And if you want to get in touch, just search Probably True Podcast on the socials. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.